Hi, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and I love Women in the Word, and I love being here today with each one of you. It's a blessing for me, and my prayer is that it is a blessing for you as well to be able to be here and study God's truth together. You know, the, the news recently has been filled with stories of large numbers of people leaving California. I don't know whether anyone here has left California, but you know, that hasn't always been the case. Beginning in the 1840s with the gold rush, uh, people actually began to flock to California with the slogan, California are best painted on their wagons. Uh, They headed west hoping to strike it rich, hoping for a better life, a life of prosperity. Now, the California craze actually happened again in the 1930s uh, with the Oklahoma Dust Bowl. There was a devastating drought in the Midwest and thousands of people left the Midwest, this time headed to California with the slogan, California are bust on the sides of their 1930s cars and trucks. Um, They were hoping not for the gold fields, they were looking for green fields, places that had fertile land, a good place to begin a life that was better. That's what they were traveling forward for. But regardless of why they went, whether it was for the gold or for the fertile farming opportunities, the meaning was clear. They were headed the un- away from the unproductive life that they currently had to a better life. And they were headed there at all costs. Nothing was going to stop them from, ma- from making that journey to a better life. Now we're going to continue on together in the book of Hebrews. And today the author of that incredible book wants us to have a slogan as well. I believe that the slogan he wants us all to have is maturity or bust. And you know, we don't put banners on our cars anymore, do we? We wear t-shirts. So I think he's having t-shirts made for all of us that say maturity or bust. Because he's going to give us the challenge and his readers here, these Jewish Christians, that challenge of leaving our spiritual immaturity behind and heading at all costs to spiritual maturity in Christ. And it's a worthwhile journey to definitely a more productive spiritual life. So open your Bibles with me. We're going to start in chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Okay, so last week when we ended chapter 5, he gave us his third warning in the book of Hebrews. And our author actually continues that warning here in chapter 6. You know, the Hebrew Christians were babies. They were spiritual babies. They were unskilled in the word we learned. They were unable to use the word to discern right from wrong. They were unable to make decisions in their life based on their faith. They still required milk. 
just the very basics of their spiritual faith. So as chapter 6 begins, um, our author's concern about their spiritual maturity actually morphs into an action plan here. I love action plans. I know there's some of you out there that like action plans too. He has an action plan for these spiritual babies. If they're going to grow spiritually, it's time for them to move forward. Now, in verse 1, your Bible uses the word leave. Your translation may say move beyond. But when he says the word leave, he doesn't mean abandon the basic doctrines that they know about their faith. What he means is those basic doctrines are a starting point. That is square one for them. They can move beyond the fundamental teachings of the Old Testament that actually prepared the way for the Messiah those were only the beginning. Uh, these Jewish Christians no longer need to take part in the rituals that were part of their Jewish faith. Uh, they don't have to work their way to salvation by keeping the law anymore. These were dead works, dead works. They also no longer needed those very basic uh, principles of Christianity in Christ alone, by faith alone, because they had already embraced Jesus as the Messiah through their faith. They could leave that basic principle behind and move forward from that now, using it as a springboard to move forward in their faith. Some of you out there have had those courses in child development. Teachers and nurses all have to have those child development courses. And if you do, you know that there are basic stages that babies and children go through to grow to adulthood. Um, they do them simply because their bodies have been programmed to do those. They don't have to think about it. They don't wake up every day and think, you know, I should grow half an inch this week. Maybe gain a pound before we go to the pediatrician. If they're healthy, their growth happens without them ever thinking about it, doesn't it? But, you know, baby believers don't have the same unintentional journey to spiritual maturity. Baby believers have to choose to move forward. They have to make a choice to leave behind their immaturity. They must choose to know more about God. They must choose to learn how to apply their faith. They must choose to do that every single day, to learn how to discern good from evil. But the great news for them here, I love that their author always encourages them, they don't have to do it alone. They don't have to pull themselves up by their bootstraps to move forward in their spiritual maturity. He gives them the great encouragement that their spiritual growth happens as they depend on God himself. It is by their his power that they will move forward. You know, we're all going to go out into the parking lot today and get in our cars and intentionally, by our choice, press the start button and then put our foot on the accelerator, we're going to have to make a choice to start the car. But it's not that choice that actually moves us out of the parking lot, is it? The power behind that is the engine under the hood. Without that engine, we can press that start button all day long, but none of us are going to go anywhere. When these Jewish Christians accept the challenge they are given here to move forward from being baby believers to vibrant, growing believers in Christ, they don't do it alone. 
God's spirit empowers them, gives them whatever it takes to move forward. And, you know, just like these Jewish Christians, we are given the same challenge in our spiritual lives as well, aren't we? If we are going to move forward to spiritual maturity, we have to make that choice every single day. And as we do, God will join us on our journey. Look at uh, James 4.8 on your verse sheet. One of my favorite verses. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let's all commit today to accept that challenge to move forward in our spiritual life. To go from wherever we are on our spiritual journey to maturity in Christ. And as we do... We're not going to do it alone. Our great and wonderful God is going to walk by our side, helping us as we move to maturity. Let's read a couple more verses. Look at verse 4 with me. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So our warning gets serious here. It gets serious. If you fall away from the path of spiritual maturity after leaving that starting point, maybe you take a step or two and then you fall away, there are going to be consequences, serious consequences. But before we look closer at these couple of complicated verses here, I want to share with you that um, over the years, these two verses have been interpreted basically four different ways by a lot of different theologians. I'm going to share with you those four interpretations and the one that I think we all need to stand on today. There are some theologians that interpret these two verses to mean that Christians can lose their salvation. Um, They think these verses here are talking about believers who have left the path to maturity, and the minute they stepped off that path, their redemption that came from the blood of Jesus no longer applied to them. I want you to put a big X through that interpretation because believers can never lose their salvation. Uh, And we're going to talk a little more about that in just a few minutes. But the second interpretation that you will read about from theologians is that these verses mean that salvation never occurred for the people he's talking about here. That maybe they gave lip service to Jesus as um, the Savior, but they never really made that uh, connection with him with their heart. They never really believed he was crucified for their sins. A third interpretation is interesting. It says that this is a hypothetical situation, that if a Christian could lose their salvation, these are the consequences that they would suffer. But it is the fourth interpretation that I believe that is the most likely and logical. It's upheld by many, many theologians. It is actually this fourth interpretation that is in line with the doctrinal belief of Christ's chapel. You'll read it in our doctrinal statement, Um, this fourth interpretation believes here that our author is not 
talking about losing their salvation because, ladies, losing your salvation is impossible. It's impossible. Once we are saved, we are always saved. Write that down across the top of your outline. Write it in the front of your Bibles. If there's one truth that you hold on to, I want it to be that you never lose your salvation. Once we are saved, we are always saved. The scriptures bear that truth out over and over and over again. And when we interpret scripture, we always use scripture to interpret other scriptures. So you can't pick out two verses like these and apply a meaning to it without looking to the rest of the entire Bible to see what it says. Look at John 5.24 on your verse sheet. This affirms the assurance of your salvation. This is Jesus talking. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That is a final process in your salvation. It can't be reversed. And John 10, 29 says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. No one is able to take away your salvation. We actually have included in your notebooks, you may have talked about it this morning, A whole page of verses titled Assurance of Salvation. We could have included more than one page. Uh, These verses all confirm the truth that once you are saved, you are always saved. So the most likely interpretation for these two verses here uh, is that our author is talking about the danger of a believer after being saved, because he is immature. He hasn't walked far enough down the path to maturity. Because of that immaturity, he turns away from God's truth and embraces error, he embraces sin, he embraces carnal lifestyles, and as a result, becomes totally hardened to God himself. We know that our author is talking about believers here, not unbelievers, as one of those uh, interpretations said, because of how he describes them. He describes them as enlightened. He describes them as tasted the heavenly gift, which of course is our Lord Jesus Christ himself. He describes them as knowing the goodness of the word of God and having the Holy Spirit. All of these are descriptions of believers, uh, those who have turned from the law of Judaism to redemption in Jesus. They have a genuine conversion experience to Christ. But what's happened here is after that conversion, they've not continued. Now, the Greek word for fallen away here uh, means apostasy or to deviate from the right path. And the word apostasy here means turning from God's truth and embracing error turning from God's truth and embracing error. Now, in chapter 2, we looked at this with Amy a couple of weeks ago. Our author warns against drifting away. Now, the Greek word for drifting away means carelessly let slip by. But our warning here with falling away is much more dramatic. This is not just drifting or backsliding. Falling away is a choice. It's not an idle mistake that you just 
stumbled on. If you are deviating from the path of truth, you've made a choice to do so. You've chosen a lifestyle or an action or a behavior that turns its back on God's truth. One author I read described it as a decisive rejection of God's gifts, which is similar to what we studied together in Numbers a couple of years ago when the Israelites were out in the wilderness after leaving Mount Sinai and they sent 12 spies into the promised land um, and only Joshua and Caleb came back with a good report. And as a result, the Israelites rejected God's plan for them to go into the promised land. Um, They rejected God's plan for them to move forward on their spiritual journey. It was a decisive rejection of God's gift, and they paid the consequence for that too. They remained in the wilderness all of their life and never were allowed, that generation was never allowed to enter the promised land because of their decisive rejection of God's gift. We also see here what the future holds for those who decisively, believers who do decisively turn their back on God's truth, rejecting his blessings. It says right here that it's impossible for them to be restored to repentance. Now, I have to confess that when I was first studying this, this was kind of a hard concept for me to unravel because repentance is one of those incredible privileges that we have as believers uh, through our faith in Christ. We sin, we're convicted of our sin. We recognize it, and then we have the opportunity to repent or turn away from that sin. And God is so faithful and loving. He always gives us his forgiveness. So what's different here? What makes it impossible for them to uh, return and repent? The message here is that those who have fallen away, those who have decisively turned their back on God's truth, find it impossible to repent or turn away from their sin because of a deep hardening of their hearts against any effort to bring them back to the truth. You know, I think some of us in this room could say we know people like that. We have friends or acquaintances or family members even that maybe sat beside us in the pew at one time or were part of our small group. Um, They have turned their back on their faith, embraced error in a big way in their life. And now they want to answer your phone calls and they certainly don't accept your invitations to return to church. It's impossible to restore them to repentance because of their hard hearts. They won't even listen to truth anymore. There's another challenging phrase in these two verses as well. It says they are crucifying once again the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. And that's exactly what anyone does that turns their back on God's truth. And certainly those that are part of this Jewish Christian community are doing that if they turn their back on God's truth. When you turn your back on the truth of what Jesus has done for you on the cross, a truth that these Jewish Christians once believed, uh, because of that rejection, what it means is they are standing now shoulder to shoulder with those enemies of Jesus that called him a liar and a traitor, that insisted that he be put on the cross. 
these Jewish Christians that turn their back on God are denying our Lord Jesus and his work as their sin substitute now. They have hardened their hearts to everything that Jesus suffered for their sin, holding his sacrifice now that they once took completely and faithfully as the truth. Now they're holding his sacrifice in contempt. And this would especially be true if this is the case of Jewish Christians that are turning back to the rituals of Judaism, that are turning back to keeping the law. That means they would be identifying themselves with the Jewish unbelief and the malice that led to Jesus' crucifixion. Okay, read a couple more verses with me. Look at verses 7 and 8. For lamb that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is uh, to be burned. Okay, so I love this illustration. It's a great visual illustration from nature about the blessings of maturity and the consequences of immaturity and apostasy because, you know, both fields are equal opportunity fields here, aren't they? They both experience the blessing of rain just as all believers have the blessing and the privilege of God's word. It's available to everyone when they have their salvation. Everyone can have the blessing of God's word. But both fields uh, could be fruitful, just as all believers have the opportunity to be fruitful um, from the truth of God's word. The question is, what will each field that received rain produce? Or what will each believer produce given the truth of God's word that they have readily at their fingertips? One field produces a crop that is useful, which is a reference here to believers who live productive lives, who live fruitful lives, honoring God, serving God, benefiting his kingdom, and benefiting God's people. Those lives who are productive, honoring God, are going to receive his divine blessings. But if a believer on their journey to maturity manages to fall away, Their life, our author says, is unproductive for God's kingdom. And the word he uses here is pretty harsh. It's worthless. It's worthless. And worthless here, uh, the Greek word for worthless means disapproved, reprobate. Reprobate, failing to gain God's blessing. They are in danger of being cursed. Now, that is not cursed in terms that unbelievers are cursed, which we would take to be separated for God by eternity in hell. This is not cursed as unbelievers are cursed. This is cursed um, in terms of receiving God's judgment in the form of consequences, his condemnation. Um, And being burned here is not a reference to hell. Again, this is a reference to the judgment that believers who are unproductive in their life because they have turned away from God and are embracing error. This is judgment in the form of consequences that God allows into the lives of those 
who refuse his gifts, who refuse his gifts. We all know those people too, don't we? Some of us in the room may have suffered consequences from our sin. Probably all of us have suffered consequences from our sin. Uh, Financial ruin uh, from addictions, adultery that shatters families. Those are consequences from stepping off the path um, and embracing error. But even as our author gives um, this illustration uh, of an unproductive, worthless field, there is still hope. There's still hope. Um, An unproductive field being burned is a reminder that in agriculture, that's what they do to burn off the thorns and the thistles and make the soil more fertile. Whenever that happens, a field can become fruitful when you've burned off all that unwanted vegetation. You know, those who are headed into disaster in their lives because they are leaving God's truth and embracing area, most of the time they seem unstoppable. Nothing we say stops them. And they, they go headlong into disastrous consequences. But we can hold on to hope for them, can't we? Because once they have suffered the severe consequences that God may have for them, this illustration reminds us that there is hope for them to be restored to a life of blessing. Now, our focus today as believers um, must also be on heeding this warning of apostasy that our author gives here. You know, as God's women studying the Bible here today, all of us sitting here with our Bibles open, it may seem silly to think that any of us could deliberately step off the path of spiritual maturity and turn to air. But the culture around us calls us to do that every minute of every day. It's offering us lies that are completely contrary to God's truth. It's they surround us. And some of those lies seem pretty attractive, don't they? They're dressed up in packages, tied with bows, and offered to us wherever we turn. I was listening to a podcast of Dr. David Jeremiah a couple of weeks ago, and he told a story about a friend of his, actually a pastor of an evangelical church that had recently decided to take a year off from pastoring his church. And along with that, for some reason, he decided he would take a a break from spiritual things. So at the end of the year, what do you think happened? At the end of the year, This pastor, this seminary graduate, this great friend of Dr. David Jeremiah, decided God didn't exist at all. Didn't exist at all. All of us, it doesn't matter who we are, how many Bibles we own, how often we come to Bible study or church, all of us have to heed the warning of apostasy. It is serious and real. Never turn away from God's truth for any reason. Because when we do, it will lead to his judgment and the painful consequences of an unproductive life. Read with me. Look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things 
things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, so we've done the heavy stuff here, the hard stuff. Uh, But even when we are talking about believers turning their back on God's truth and embracing error, there's still hope. There's still hope. And our author warns his readers throughout the book of Hebrews. I hope you've picked up on that. But every time he warns them, he always gives them hope and encouragement. He always encourages them. And what he encourages them with here is that he has every expectation that they are going to stay on that path to maturity. He doesn't believe that they are going to fall away. He does believe in them, and he's cheering them on. And when he talks about salvation here, he's not simply talking about saving faith, their initial uh, placement of their faith in Christ. He's talking about their future in heaven with the Savior. It's going to be a glorious day. This salvation is their future of a glorious life in heaven with Jesus forever, filled with every inheritance that the Lord God has for them. If they diligently continue putting one foot in front of the other on the path to maturity, these Jewish Christians are going to enter their eternal rest of salvation with incredible blessings and rewards waiting for them. It's their future. It's their future if they stay the course. He also reminds them, he encourages them by reminding them that God sees what they're doing in their life. God sees their work. God sees the love that they show to those around them serving the saints. You know, in this world, sometimes we look around and think, I hope everyone knows how hard I worked here uh, to do this. Um, None of that matters, ladies, because everything you do for God, God sees and knows and um, is waiting to give you rewards for Um, Our Jewish Christians are honoring him here. He's making, they are making his name great and they will reap the rewards one day if they stay the course to the end. That's his message here. Do not give up. Do not give up. The word sluggish or lazy here is actually the same word in the Greek that he used back in chapter 5 when he called them dull of hearing. Um, He wants them to reach the goal of their full inheritance, all of the things that God has waiting for them in eternity with Jesus. But they're only going to do it if they shrug off the laziness that comes from immaturity. Um, You know, no one who is lazy ever reaches their full maturity, their full potential, do they? Um, Those of you that have kids or even teachers that are in this room all know um, kiddos that you've taught or maybe parented that are so bright and so capable, but they're lazy. They don't want to do their work. They don't turn in their schoolwork. Uh, They don't reach their potential. Um, He does not want that to be our spiritual journey. We will never reach our full potential as believers 
poor our full inheritance that God already has stored up in heaven waiting for us if we are lazy on our journey to maturity. And it's easy to do. Being lazy calls out to us every single day. If we stop studying our Bibles, if we stop applying God's truth, you know, it's really complicated to figure out what that says. I'll just do it my way. If we stop meeting with God's people because we're too busy to be at church or to be at Bible study, if we stop sharing God's message because we're afraid of what people will think of us, we may have our salvation. We're never going to lose that But our salvation uh, has no fruit. Our life will not reach its full productive inheritance that's waiting for us if we stay baby believers. Spiritual laziness is a roadblock to our spiritual maturity. Look at Proverbs 24, 30 on your verse sheet. I pass by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. That's a picture of our spiritual lives if we do not shrug off laziness. If we are spiritually lazy, the field that we have is overgrown and the fence is broken down. But he does give us a remedy here for the roadblock of laziness. And his remedy, his wisdom, is to be diligent. And I love the word diligent. The definition of diligent is eagerly, earnestly, energetic. And that's what he's sharing here with these Jewish Christians. Be diligent, be eagerly, earnest, be energetic to the end. To the end, not just at the beginning, not just at the middle, but all the way to the end. And intentionally imitate those whose faith and patience let them inherit every single promise that God has for his people on this earth and in the next life. Um, We're going to have the privilege of studying Hebrews chapter 11 in a couple of weeks, which is the Faith Hall of Fame. There are so many people in there that we are going to be able to intentionally imitate as we are diligent to the end of our spiritual course. Now, our author's words here for these Jewish Christians, of course, ring true for us as well. We have to be diligent to the end. We have to be intentional as we walk with God every single day. I loved in the leaders meeting today, several people pointed that out. It doesn't just happen, ladies. You had to get up and intentionally get yourself to women in the word today, didn't you? We cannot be lazy on our journey. I have... um, Uh, kids and grandkids that live in Montana. So I've had the opportunity to do hiking with them in the incredible Glacier National Park, and it is incredible. It is a bucket list item if you haven't been to Glacier. Um, But I learned a lot hiking in Glacier. I learned that um, I had to be diligent and intentional every step of the way on those mountain trails up to the incredible 
incredible views that we had in Glacier. I had to keep putting one foot in front of the other with that earnest, and I tried to be eager, consistent energy, that uh, diligent means. Um, and I had to be pretty intentional watching every step because there were um, uh, tree roots and rocks and holes along the way. And the scenery was gorgeous. And honestly, I really just wanted to look around and take everything in, but I could not take my eyes off the trail in front of me as we traveled up those different mountain trails because I was going to be the one that fell away into the river gorge that we were walking beside. Uh, I had to be diligent and intentional the entire way. But the great news is every trail was filled with hikers who were so much more experienced than I was. You could tell by the way they were dressed. I mean, I had on my, you know, tennis shoes, my workout shoes, you know, and they had these great hiking boots. I wanted to stop and find out where they got them. They had great hiking boots. They had the perfect hiking backs and the perfect water. Um, so as they all passed me by on the trail, I was able to learn from those much more experienced hikers um, who passed me by. Our spiritual journeys are the same. We have to be diligent and intentional, and we have to keep looking around uh, for those whose faith and patience are going to encourage us and help us stay the course to the end so that we don't fall away. Okay, look at verse uh, 13 here with me. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swore, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited uh, patiently, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, their oath, uh, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible to God for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, Abraham is one of those great, incredible examples whose faith and patience we should all imitate as we are on our journey to spiritual maturity. And in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant promise to Abraham that assured him of offspring, children, as well as land and blessing. And God actually ratifies that covenant promise Swearing by his own oath, swearing by himself alone, which means that nothing in heaven or on earth can change God's promise. Now, Abraham waited 25 years uh, for, from the time of God's promise of offspring of children until Isaac, the child of the promise, was born. And then in Genesis 22, when Isaac was around 20 years old, God tested Abraham again by ordering him to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. But with each test, 
each test. First, Abraham suffered the, um, endured the test of time with faith and patience. And then the second test was the test of sacrifice. Abraham held on with each test to the promise he had been given. It didn't matter what his circumstances were. What mattered was what God himself had promised him and given his oath to secure. What our author is doing here as he gives Abraham up as an example is encouraging his readers that they can trust God's promises as well. Just as Abraham walked the road to maturity with uh, patience and faith, diligently uh, staying the course, so with these Jewish Christians. There was much they were going to have to face on their spiritual journey, but they could endure hardship and persecution and waiting and testing just as Abraham did. They could stay the course to maturity because their God is faithful. Their God is faithful. And their hope of eternity in Jesus is not an empty promise of God. Look at Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. That is not an empty promise. And look at Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The hope of eternity. These Jewish Christians can hope in what they know their future is going to be in Christ because of God's faithfulness. Let's read those last two verses. Look at 19 with me. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So our author has encouraged them with Abraham's faith and patience and his final encouragement to them to stay the course to spiritual maturity in their lives comes from Jesus himself. Now, in the day that these words were written, ships would have to search for a secure harbor, someplace safe from the currents and the storms in order to anchor. And these harbors were generally deep. So what they would do is they would put the anchor in a small boat, and then they would row it close to the shore where they could stick it firmly and securely in the mud of the sand, um, and it would lodge there holding the ship fast in place. As these Jewish Christians journey towards spiritual maturity, their hope is already firmly secured in heaven because Jesus has gone before them into the heavenly harbor, into the heavenly sanctuary where he is their high priest forever. He is the anchor of their soul and he's already in heaven holding their future secure. They don't have to worry that God is going to change his mind about what their future looks like because Jesus is there holding their future secure. And if they hold fast to that anchor of their soul that is firmly planted in heaven, they are not going to be thrown off course by the storms of life or the currents of their Jewish culture swirling around them. They are going to 
stay the course to the end and achieve spiritual maturity. Jesus is the anchor that is going to keep these Jewish Christians from being dragged back into the rituals of their Jewish culture, into Judaism that is around them in their day. Jesus is the sure and steadfast anchor that has gone before them. He is their high priest forever. And this is a timely message for us in today's world, isn't it? Um, a great chapter for us as we look around the world today. Because Jesus is the anchor of our soul as well, we don't have to worry about being dragged away either, do we? Dragged off the path to spiritual maturity, falling off the path to spiritual maturity by the chaos and uncertainty of the world around us greets us every single morning when we get up, doesn't it? We are securely tethered to Jesus by our faith because he resides in heaven today. He's going to keep us safe and secure and steady and firm as we walk the path to spiritual maturity each and every day. Um, with Jesus as our anchor, it doesn't matter how high the waves get, our boat is not going to be rocked. So we can hold fast to Jesus. We can take the challenge that the author gives us here to move on to spiritual maturity. We can heed the warning for apostasy. We can diligently and intentionally day in and day out grow more like him every single day. Look at Hebrews 12, 1 with me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our slogan is maturity your best? Pray with me. Father, you're a great and a good God. I just thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that we are able to hold these Bibles in our hands, um, to learn from them each and every day. Father, I thank you for these women who are on the path to spiritual maturity, and they are diligently and intentionally walking that path every single day. Father, I pray you would encourage each and every one of us that we would um, hold fast to our Lord Jesus, who is the anchor of our soul. And I pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.